This conversation was recorded on August 30th, 2019. Everyone struggled to keep Jenkins from going woof woof, yet he still went woof woof. Maybe you might hear some woof woof in it. It's a sled. He's dead. The box contains his wife's head. Vader's his father. They're allergic to water. She's her sister and her daughter. You watched it wrong. Hey, welcome back, everyone. This is Wade. And this is Siggy, and you're listening to You Watched It Wrong, where we dissect movies, pick them apart, and get deep, deep into their guts. And in this episode, we're going to have an extra pair of hands to go in those guts, as we've brought on a, our very special guest, our old friend, our very special old friend, our very old and special friend. Is there another arrangement of that? I don't think so. From way back in our college days, uh, the fellow resident of the famed Communications Residential College of Northwestern University, also known as CRC, welcome none other than Mr. Levi Stahl. How are you, Levi? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, as somebody who's known Siggy and Wade for 25 plus years now. Yeah, just about. Yeah. Uh, and who has listened to, I think, every episode of the show that had to do with a movie I had seen or was never going to see. All right. You're in the wrong head club. <laughs> uh, I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Great. Well, Levi, uh, you know us. We know you. And the the world knows you mostly these days. I think primarily as a book person. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, you know, for many reasons, uh, through your prominent position at University of Chicago Press, rival press of... I wish I could say a rival press of University of Michigan Press. Um, <laughs> not really. Your blog I've been reading lately, uh, the one on Blogspot, not the Japanese porn site that's taken over. You've uh, I've been reading lately.com. I learned that recently. But also in your Twitter feed where uh, you have been tweeting uh, primarily excerpts and commentary on books you're reading, which is quite a lot of books, an, an intimidating amount of books. In fact, we're recording here in Levi and Stacy's uh, personal library. But lately, you've also been tweeting about the movies that you're watching. You've developed a long Twitter thread, which is mostly just screenshots of things, ranging from episodes from Columbo to Rocky to Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, because you've been in this 70s jag for uh, some reason that maybe you could talk about why that is. But you had this theme where you just post these screenshots from 70s things you're watching, and then you just repeat the mantra over and over again. The secret theme of every 70s movie is the material shittiness of the 70s. And as if that weren't ripe enough for discussion, you teased at one point that this theme was somehow exemplified by a certain connection, an unspecified connection, between 1976's The Bad News Bears and 1978's remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And that was sufficient cause for Wade and I to agree that we had to have you on You Watched It Wrong so we could dig into this further. So Levi, let's get deep, elbow deep into these guts. Take us to the bowels, man. Tell us, what do you mean when you say the secret theme of every 70s movie is the material shittiness of the 70s? So if you watch a lot of 70s movies, which I've been doing lately, there is a point where you, you realize there's an inescapable quality that they share, not all of them, but most of them, which is this material shittiness. There will be scenes where you spy it. Uh, for example... You'll be in a house and the kitchen will be linoleum covered and kind of 
the stove isn't great and the fridge is old and a little small and weird compared to what we're used to. Or characters will be out in the street and there will be a lot of garbage and graffiti and boarded up stuff and the cars look like crud and they're old and they're also kind of poorly designed and you can tell they wouldn't be good to drive. And it's not necessarily even about, it's not about class, although there certainly are films that make deliberate use of that. But you see it in other places that aren't, it's not about poverty. You see it in places like Rocky's uh, foe Apollo Creed in his manager's office, which is supposed to be a wealthy place. These are Apollo is successful, his manager is successful. But it's covered with this wood paneling and the chairs of this dark leather that's not really a nice looking design. It doesn't look comfortable to sit in. You'll see it in fancy restaurants in Colombo where you can tell that there's a fog of cigarette smoke deep in the upholstery and you can just kind of see it here. And I think there's two key things about this to me. One, that it's not generally deliberate. You certainly do get occasions like, say, with Taxi Driver where they've set out to deliberately show an urban setting that is run down or something like Norma Ray, where they're really explicitly trying to show you some class differences in the housing but for the most part, it's just these are locations they shot on and they didn't dress much, it seems, or they're interiors that they created not to look shitty, but to look like interiors of the period, which to our eyes 40 years later are obviously shitty. And the other key thing is that generally the characters don't notice it at all. And by extension, I think the filmmakers aren't. You, the characters are just living in this world because this is the world they live in. And to us, 40 years later, 45, 50 almost, it looks terrible. And it looks like the kind of thing that would like, sap your soul and sap your energy day to day and moment to moment. And they're just going about it. And that's where, to my mind, the connection comes into the Bad News Bears and the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. With those films, it's not so much that they're exemplary of the material shittiness, although there are moments in each of them where that I see that, but that they're two movies that seem to me to be aware that the story they're telling is set in a strange time, that there is weird and uncomfortable and not necessarily good stuff in the air of their period. And I like putting them together because they're such different films and such different types of film, but that vibe carries through both of them for me. So I guess the first question I need to ask is, um, you're you're putting this forward as if there's something exceptional about the 70s in this regard, and I wonder, like, why why is it you don't see that for the decades prior or following, or um, is it something that's just happening at a remove of 40 to 50 years, or was, is it something you would have noticed uh, 10 years later? 20 years later. The first part of this, I don't have enough film knowledge to be confident in what I'm going to say here, but I'll put out some tentative thoughts, which is the seven, by the seventies, you're getting to more, a little more um, onset shooting, a little more like what I think of as faux realism, things like the uh, Don Siegel film of the outfit, where you've got action films that are trying to depict themselves as being set out in the world in a way that, a few years earlier probably would have been more a little more staged or a little more on set. And so that's one thing that I think I'm on okay ground, but not great. I, yeah. that's, I mean, that resonates with me. I don't know what you think, Wade, but that 70s was like consciously going for a grittier feel. Well, I think the, the next part of that is that the 70s were the come-down decade. They were 
the post-war boom was over and people were starting to figure that out slowly. The It's a cliche, but I don't think it's untrue that the promise of the 60s had really faded. You were left with a lot of successes, a lot of lasting social successes in terms of expanding important rights for people. But I, the sense you get is it didn't really feel that way. It felt like a lot of losses. And add that into an economy that's a mess to that affects everything, especially, again, on a material level, from where what people can do in their house to what kind of cars they're driving and how long they drive them. And you get a sense of what erupted in the Carter years as the malaise. And you, you always feel, looking back, that if the people who are interpreting our own era now are as wrong as they seem to be moment to moment about it, that I worry about taking the received opinion about earlier eras but with the 70s, with some slippage here and there on the edges, it does kind of feel right. You've definitely hit upon something. And I think there's a combination of things that are all funneling into one another to make this kind of thing. I mean, granted, we you have to also acknowledge we do have the perception of having everything that's come since the 70s and the improvements on technologies and the improvements on products and building materials and, and consumer goods and things like that to where now we look back with a judgment and go, oh, well, that is demonstrably shitty, but it's still a judgment from our vantage point. Even just disregarding that for a moment, I think what happened was a rare harmony between studios and artists and audiences and manufacturers that just kind of all came together to, to now make that we see everything from the seventies to be shitty. And uh, in fact, there was a clip, there's a quip in uh, cinematic Titanic's, a takedown of uh, East meets Watts where Frank Conniff says this. Why was it that everything filmed in the seventies looks ugly, even a beautiful city like San Francisco. That was the first thing that came to my mind was Frank Conniff. Just like, I don't understand how, how can the city look so bad on film? Well, do you think of the difference between Vertigo and Body Snatchers when you see, when you see San Francisco right. and it could oh, be it's... more night and day? Right, right, right. I think that's due to not just excising uh, the artistic decisions out of it, but one, around this time, the film stocks changed. They started making a faster speed film that could work better in lower light. And before that, the cameras at the time, in the 60s and the 50s, the cameras were huge. Technicolor film actually is not shot on color film. It's impossible to shoot that on color film. The, basically, what happens is that when the light comes through the lens, it breaks the light up and then goes through three colored gels, red, green, and blue, to land on a black and white film. And then they take those and they make you know red, white, and blue layers of those film and they layer them over each other. And it, it gives a real lushness to it they call that the three-step process right right and it's a it's it, it looked great but it's expensive so what did that mean physically for physical production of film that meant the cameras were big and heavy it took a lot of things to just move them so a lot of times they didn't the lights were huge because it took so much light to make an exposure so then you've got these sets that they've built which admittedly are made of shitty material they're not bringing in gold and, you know, it's paint on, you know, gypsum or, or flats, you know. They're, they, they are just as shitty as the stuff we're shooting later, but they got so much light, so much, um, and, then, and then a lushness to it through their process that it looks gorgeous, right? But filmmakers were frustrated by how much went into just doing that. 
and the, how slow the whole process was. And it wasn't immediate. It didn't. It slowed everyone down and everyone's mood was down. So then when they started developing this film stock, they could get exposure with lower light but higher grain. They, the filmmakers jumped on it because they wanted to move fast. They, they wanted to tell stories with immediacy. They wanted energy in their, move, in their cameras. So they jumped to it and went to it, right? Studios, in this rare harmony of like different goals but using the same tools, they were like, we want to save money. Hey, these cameras are cheaper. The gear is cheaper. They don't even use lights. Great. Let's just do that. And you'll see a lot. And even in Body Snatchers, this seemed to be a, a, a big thing in that. Filmmakers were inspired by the French New Wave that were just going out and shooting and not even worrying about sound and just doing all the sound in studio later. You'll notice a lot of evasion in the Body Snatchers is ADR, where they go put in their... They didn't even mess with it. And it's obvious. It also sounds a lot better than when they're doing sync sound, particularly Donald Sutherland. And like, what is he saying? And then like he'll move his <laughs> exactly. face away from... The camera, and now they're ADR. Oh, now I can understand him when he's because they're doing ADR, and and now he's got like the dulcet tones of Harry Shear on the radio. <laughs> and then you come back, and he's like, ah, it's very tinny and stuff. But you know, if you tighten down your iris and get more light, you get a better looking picture. You you lessen the light, open up your iris. It looks really, it looks shitty, and so that's what everyone was shooting on. So like, you know, and then add to the fact that product manufacturers are making shittier products the, the plastic is in its adolescence and building supplies and real estate people are trying to cut corners all the time and they've made the entire san fernando valley here in the 70s and it looks still like the 70s and uh then we're and then filmmakers who are wanting to get that immediacy are going out into that environment and shooting that with wide open irises and no external light and then you got shitty you got a shitty filter on shitty stuff now the question is, how much were they aware of it, right? How much were the filmmakers aware that this is what the effect they were having? Some, I think, do. Some, most just don't. This is what they had to work with. Like, I, I, I feel that the, the thesis works is not... I, can, I found some of it in Bad News Bears, but not really so much. As, but Body Snatchers, the opening shots on Earth, I think it makes your whole claim for you. There's that shot where the... Where you, where, you know, he pans from the Golden Gate Bridge and to the plants that got that little clear goo on it that floated down from space. I don't know how it didn't burn up in the atmosphere, but we'll let that go. And then, um, and then, it, and then it, that one shot that I think makes your whole thesis is seeing that San Fr shot of San Francisco. It's blown out. It looks like someone just dumped a playground's worth of sand on it. And then it pans down to a vibrant, beautiful flower with that gel on it. And then we watched the little tendrils come out. And in a way it almost, I thought gave the feeling of as horrible as this alien invasion is going to be, it's kind of actually more natural than what you guys did. It almost seemed like you're saying that they're more right to take over. <laughs> so yeah, I found that under the light of your, uh, of your thesis. I was, I watched it again uh, two nights ago. And yeah, I was like, oh yeah, this movie's totally about this. Thinking about San Francisco specifically, again, thinking back to Vertigo as well, and how, and the, the clip you played, it is the city Americans think of when they think of a beautiful city. And in this movie, it's not. It's dark and right. uncomfortable and a little scary. And even the daylight scenes, you get that 
the fog is not romantic, it's oppressive. The places that don't look shitty are like the big the municipal building where right. the health department is. But there it feels almost like a mismatch because the people running around in them are wearing 70s clothes looking out of place. Even those corridors in that building look pretty dark and dank. Like, <laughs> that guy's been mopping them right. constantly and never let it dry out. <laughs> yeah, and, they're, and they're, the furniture is cramped in, in there like it doesn't belong in that building, you know? This is pushing the, this idea a little too far, but almost as if the contemporary people have taken over an environment that was made for a different kind of person, a, a more... A more uh, you know, 19th century person, honestly, like right. someone who is dressing in a suit the whole time. Thinking about this theme with the Bad News Bears and watching it again for the first time in probably dozen years with it specifically in mind, I think you're right that it doesn't turn up as much. But there are little hints. One of them that I think is also important for the question of what's weird about the 70s being Pizza Hut. <laughs> the parents in the league go to a league meeting at Pizza Hut, a kickoff party, and Pizza Hut is the place you go celebrate. And it still is that way in some parts of America. It was in the town I grew up in. But there's something specific about Pizza Hut as a place with clear limits. Right. And it, that comes through in this scene. What What kind of limits do you mean? You... You go to Pizza Hut in the 70s because in a lot of places it's as close to fine dining as you could get for your family. Uh, the, the, the kids could go to, that you could be comfortable there, but that you also, there are tablecloths, there's right. candles, there's yep. table service. But my memories of it are also that it was always a little bit gross. I wasn't conscious of that, but I had the same experience. That was that was like a nice place we went to eat when I was a kid. Like you said, there's candles on the table. Their Pac-Man machine was the tabletop cocktail table form factor instead of the upright cabinet. Right, With like exactly. leather swivel chairs on either side so you could set your drink on top. But uh, you get like uh, breadsticks at your table. They were individually wrapped in plastic, but still like... It was pretty cool to have breadsticks at, yeah, at your totally. table. It wasn't like a fast food restaurant at all. It was it would be sit there for like an hour, ninety minutes. Whereas I think it, Pizza Hut has kind of accepted a position as a in between fast food and sit down at this place. Yeah, I wonder point. how that changed. Basically, right now, most of the Pizza Huts that I've seen, I, I don't, I can't think of a sit down Pizza Hut anymore. There's, there's, they put a one chair in the front. There's just enough room for three people to stand in there. It's fun become functional. The function is I need pizza in my mouth. And they just go, well, we don't need anything <laughs> to do that other than just something to hand you the pizza in. Now, our Pizza Hut in particular in the 70s did have a sweaty guy in the front with a beard <laughs> and long hair who'd be cutting your right. pizza when oh, you yeah. went to pick it up. And it would always be your pizza he was cutting. And you'd watch that drop of sweat <laughs> on his nose. Hoping it wasn't going to go home with you like a haunted mansion yeah. ghost. They reserved that guy just for the yeah. stall. Oh pizza. yeah, totally. They, they might have actually because we closet. were in a, we were in a small enough town that when my dad would call and order pizza with anchovies, they wouldn't ask his name. No. <laughs> so I I was curious about product placement in the Bad News Bears 
because I mean, for one, the bad news bears was certainly shot with that type of high speed camera. Just it's very low budget. They shot out in Chatsworth, which is just, I mean, you're talking San Fernando Valley shitty materials. That's, that's the, that's, that's the heart of it. And when they go to pizza hut, I mean, the clearly brands have paid for pizza hut for cores. He never, by the way, all the beer that Matt drinks, it's never the same beer. He's, he drinks Budweiser, no, Coors. That's a weird thing. He drinks Michelob, three or four different kinds. Same, whatever's on sale. But also, look how many brand manufacturers they got to support his alcoholism. They, you know, so I, I think this is where all the money came from for the movie. So my question, though, is how sly was that product placement? Did they, did they say, hey, we're going to have pizza at the Little League is going to have their, you know, a kickoff of the season party there. And the pizza, it's like, yeah, totally. That's what we have Pizza Hut for. And then you're like, so, but was the filmmaker trying to show here's, this is a big night for these guys. And even the big night for the, like the, the, the woman who uh, manages the uh, equipment for the ballpark is all dolled up in the best way she can for this evening and is really taking it seriously. And so you're going, okay, so are they, are they trying to point out that how sad is it that this is, that they're at a, a pizza hut or is it just, or are they just like, yeah, you have, this is reality. You have your kickoff meetings at Pizza Hut. I don't know. I don't know which one it was. Yeah, it felt like an authentic yeah, an authentic note to me. Yeah. It's like if you're working class to lower middle class, like this is a place you would take kids because they would be excited to go and the adults could have a drink too. That's the thing I take away from that scene more than anything else is that the adults part of it, that the theme to me that runs through this movie that identifies it as as a movie that understands it's in a weird spot, a weird era culturally, is that the adults are living one life and the kids are living another. Yeah. Even as this movie is about adults and kids interacting in some sense, the adults are having their party and kind of, it doesn't matter the kids are over there. They're, they're here because of the kids, but they're here to do their adult stuff. And that kind of runs start to finish with Mathel being the bridge but Mathos' way of doing it is yeah. the very 70s way of just, for the most part, treating these kids like they're adults. Like, childhood is over because the adults can't be bothered, and that feels yeah. very mid-70s. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Adults have problems and things, and there's their stuff they want to be doing and working on, so the kids are just left to do their thing. There is something uh, about the 70s, uh, kind of um, collective decision that we're all just going to be self-absorbed. This, I mean, it's the, they call it the me generation for a reason, right? Like, listen, uh, we thought we were going to solve all these problems in the 60s. That didn't work out, and now we got to get our shit together. Just everybody, hold on, hold on. And to me, that's the big thing that connects these two movies is the way they address that in their different pro- in their different ways. Yeah. I read somewhere today that there was an idea that uh, the kids who grew up in the 70s weren't aware of all this strife we're talking about, but they certainly picked up on the decadence, the grooviness that they responded to. But the parents who were parents in the 70s, the problems that they experienced as kids weren't the problems that their own kids are experiencing in the 70s. Like they had no point of reference for what their kid is going through because of their own behavior. Cry, actually, crime novelist Megan Abbott wrote well about this recently. She was writing about V.C. Andrews and who the horror novel. Oh, that, oh that's right. That's where so I read it in your notes. She, and she, she says, and she writes really well about, she writes great crime novels about young people today. And she, she wrote that 
you know, the kids in these books reflected the minefield of growing up in the 70s and 80s when children faced problems their parents had no idea how to deal with. Their parents hadn't been divorced. They hadn't gone to schools where kids sold dope in the halls. They hadn't grown up with parents taking part in EST trainings and other faddish self-help therapies. And that's kind of the essence of it, right? The, the parents have decided yeah. they have a project, which is themselves. The kids are left to do their thing. So now you're describing uh, like an emotional and spiritual shittiness. Does that like manifest directly into a material shittiness? I feel like they feed each other. Yeah. That you obviously you can have you can have a death of the soul anywhere. You can have soullessness in. I mean, you, it, Douglas Sirk shows that in beautiful settings. I think that if you're living in an environment where things around you feel kind of worn down and the drag on your desire to go out and be a part of something would tell, I think. This, this is admittedly me linking some pretty precarious bridges, but I feel it with these movies. I think the movie audiences and definitely the filmmakers were very tired of the formalism of the movies of the 50s and 60s in, in light of what actual life was dealing with the discord between what they were being told and what they actually perceived was so great that to see these movies that were all, that were all fantasies about look how nice it is that everything is great. They wanted to push away from then put this, you know, airy handheld camera in your hand that doesn't require all that weight, the high speed film that doesn't require lights. They can go out and tell the kind of story they want to tell cheaply and the studios are like, oh, we want to save money. So great. No problem. You go do that. And then now we've got the gritty, quote unquote, 70s films where people are trying to uh, talk about their disillusionment. And that shows up in design as well. There's a great article from the New York Times in 2015 called Loving the Unlovable Decade. It's by David Netto and Tom Delavan, uh, I think. I don't know how to, I hope I'm not pronouncing that wrong. And they talk about how the culture and everything influenced the design and how design kind of led that, how we went from all those lush colors to just kind of browns and oranges. What was weird was that they were trying to, to release the constraints of the fifties to throw off all that repression, but their, the colors they hailed to were like browns and dark, deep burnt orange. Earthy colors. I always thought as a kid, especially I always thought that was tied somehow to the environmental movement and like a new, uh, Trying to have a new respect for the Native American, yeah. and I always saw it tied tied somehow into those those ideas. Anyway, they, uh, these guys write in uh, this uh, article: uh, the era was a time of uncensored self-expression rather than self-reflection. In design, that led us away from restraint and towards excess. Too much shag carpet, too much color, too many reflective surfaces, and the decade proved ripe for riffing on, from Austin Powers to Calvin Klein ads with disaffected 70s style teens staring down the cameras and flashing their underwear. In contrast to the pared down dis discipline of mid-century style, the 70s were sensual and decadent. People were unafraid to take risks. The furniture was made for hanging out, lounging, or sex. Activities infinitely more tempting than what was going on in places where post-war design made its mark. Schools, offices, and hospitals. Imagine trying to make out on a <laughs> Barcelona chair. And it, it says... For most of us, though, the 1970s are best invoked in pieces rather than in whole environments. And so they go on to talk about how the 70s design is kind of coming back into style or, or has it been brought back into style, but only a little bit. 
at a time. Just the whole thing. If well, you did the whole thing, it would just be depressing. When you watch, when you see 70s interiors, they are overwhelming visually. There's, they're we like, are so used to more spare aesthetic. They're somehow drippy. There's, like they're there's, oozy. It's the organic qualities, I think, too. Again, they're, they're like uh, they're like that that body snatcher goo, which, by the way, I assume is Donald Sutherland's ejaculate <laughs> with the film run in reverse, ejaculating into a, like an aquarium. You assume everything's Donald Sutherland's ejaculate in, in the park. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm I'm oh. I thought it was Ziploc bags they just filled up with water there. They do look weirdly like dicks in that opening <laughs> scene. Those space creatures. Mm. It if you watch it again, it's it's not comfortable. I thought the practical effects of the tendrils, like when the little uh when the goo is sitting on a leaf and then underneath the clear goo oh, the tendrils kind of sprout yeah. out. Yeah. That was genuinely creepy. That's all in that camera. That was just genuinely creepy. And also, can we just talk for a brief a brief minute about the music? In uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, one thing I really appreciated was when nothing, when things are just like preparing to be threatening, when it's just kind of like this, when like it's just staring at goo and 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 floating stuff, the music is like, and then like it's gonna get bad, it's gonna get bad, and then when suddenly when it happens and things have and and now the sprouts are happening, no music. It's gone. It's just the sound of rain, and that's it. And it's almost kind of like saying at that moment, before we've met any characters, it's over. Like, it's so terrifying. It's like, this is happening, and it's happening, and there's nothing you can do about it now. Right. You've already lost. I found Invasion of the Body Snatchers, this, this one. I remember seeing bits a lot of it as a kid because my brother watched it a lot. We Of course, we taped it off television, so I don't think we saw a lot, but it's... A really haunting film. To my mind, it's the best of the paranoid 70s movies. And that's saying something because yeah. you've got a lot of good ones. Right. You absolutely and do. Specifically, watching it this time really came home how the paranoia is located in a combination of the fact that you your spot in a city in the 70s, at least for these folks is mostly as an individual. You're going about your daily business, and then the rest of city life is going on around you, and ordinarily you don't pay much attention. But then if something weird is going on, what what are those guys doing in that city construction truck doing something with the electric across the way? What is that one guy who's just running down the sidewalk? Why is he running? Right. Yeah. yeah. Suddenly the city becomes weird and scary when, if you look at it through the right lens, it's just ordinary city stuff, dude. Yeah. It's a very different vibe than in the 50s Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where before the paranoia sets in, uh, our main characters, they, they believe they're living in a nice place and happy lives and things are normal. When a little boy says, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of my mom, she's not, she's not my mom, like, the thought doesn't occur to him, well, maybe she's abusing him and I should find out what the home situation is like. You know, he's like, everything's obviously fine, I'm going to drug you immediately. <laughs> response whereas in 70s invasion before before we know that this the the jizz has actually infected anybody things are already fucked up and weird and you have you are right to feel afraid right well i mean because uh leonard nimoy everyone does even donald sutherland does to some degree which is interesting but leonard nimoy is kind of the poster child in this movie for uh if it's not normal it's not happening 
uh, well, the assumption is, is that if people start saying something that you couldn't imagine possibly being, even if there's like five of them in the room telling you, we've all had this experience, something's wrong. He's like, no, it's got to be some collective delusion then, you know, because you, you, this can't have happened. It, it reminds me of the big short. It reminds me of in the book, the big short, one thing they didn't put in the movie in an epilogue of the big short, they asked some stock traders after the fact, when they finally caught on to what was going on, the financial crisis in 2008, their, their feelings and responses had were, well, if that happened, it would be a catastrophe. So it's not gonna, it couldn't happen. It's like Chernobyl does that too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're like going, well, it, no, catastrophes can happen. Larry Nimoy is constantly telling women specifically, and then it turns to everyone else, and that's when he gets frustrated. Is women's like, no, you're hysterical. We don't, don't, we don't believe you. You're just, you're just trying to find a way to cope with the fact that you went out and you view him differently. So just acquiesce. And I think in that he actually plays two important roles in this movie. One, he represents the voice of of unquestioned authority or formerly unquestioned authority that by the 70s people were generally viewing skeptically and then the other part is he specifically says right that probably this is something psychologically in you who wants out of this relationship and you know getting out of this relationship is an option for you because everything today is temporary so you're just giving yourself a way to do it. So he's he's locating it in time really well there by playing both those parts and really hitting the heart of that era. And can we talk for a second? What the fuck is he wearing on his hand? Yeah, what is it with the with the masturbation glove? I put a po- photo of this on, on Twitter because I was curious about it, and someone answered me from IMDb. I did read that, but this was fun. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so supposedly it's an archer's glove, and supposedly Nimoy just picked it and put it on to make his character distinctive, and, oh, it worked. Nice job, Leonard. Oh, I read a different explanation oh. for what it actually is. What's that, what did you uh, read? That a friend of his had burned his hand, and he used that to, to cover the burning on the back of his hand. And he just thought it looked distinctive. Yeah, I guess you're right. This was a combination. Yeah. So you're right. More extended version. I, I showed it to my boss, and I was like, what the hell is this thing? And he's like, well, when I described it to him beforehand, he said, that's an archer's, something for archery. And then uh, I go, but it's not on his fingers. And we looked at it, and no, it doesn't go up his fingers. It it wraps around the base of his finger, but not the actual part where you would need to pull. It doesn't go up on the fingertips and come down like a, like you would need to do archery. It literally just is being held in place by his fingers. And so then we're like, well, well, then what the fuck is it? And so and then we thought, well, there's a there used to be a leather device like that for pool players, but it, it still doesn't serve any function. <laughs> So I still I, I have, so what did you think it was before before any of us had a chance to look it up or ask anybody while you're watching the movie what 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 were you thinking about it I actually thought it was just something Nimoy thought it was cool <laughs> in the moment I thought of it as an affectation on his character's part you can tell from the start his character regards himself very well mm-hmm. is a little bit off is a, even though his job is obviously talking to people he's also a little weird when he talks to people and a little he pushes boundaries and but. I thought this was just him, a way that he was dis- declaring his distinctiveness. Is it to make him look more badass, like the way someone might put on an eye patch when they don't need it? Well, I, I, I would say I, I did in Star, in our Star Wars parody, I did insist on wearing one black glove for no good reason. And Han Solo did not wear one black glove. Why did I insist on this? I have no clue. <laughs> 
So, yeah, it could just be a weird act. act of, although something just now occurred to me. The movie is very sloppy. Uh, if, if I'm going to knock it for something, it's very sloppy on conveying the moments when people notice that they don't have scars anymore. What do you mean? Like Brooke Adams goes up to, to her husband, Jeffrey, and he, she's trying to like warm him up to be like, you know, come on, what's weird? You're acting weird. What's going on? And she won't let it go until she goes to kiss his neck and she pulls his collar down and she goes <laughs> and jumps back. And we don't get the, and then and we don't get the shot. We don't get the shot. We didn't know he'd had a scar there. We didn't know he didn't have a scar there. And then later when someone says, and then she immediately acquiesces and is like, yeah, you can go ahead and go. You can go ahead and go. And then it isn't until someone mentions he had a scar and then he didn't have a scar and she, or she brings it up. And I think the only reason I knew this is because I know there's something like that in the original, right? But in the original, it does replicate the scar. Right. The guy cuts his hand that night, and that night the body grows that cut on his hand, and it, and it right. bleeds. In fact, we see, well, we see that in this yeah, one, too. It, Jeff Goldblum's it has, uh, Jeff yeah. Goldblum's bloody nose. Right. So why doesn't he have get the scar? That. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense. But maybe maybe the, the glove was to hide a pat, to hide a, a scar that wasn't there. I don't know. The whole method for how the the pods actually replicate people is a lot of fogginess there. Yeah, like the first <laughs> one from a little tiny pod overnight, it can replace Jeffrey, but for other people, it needs to have a big size pod and then give birth to a ham baby, and then like that. And it's not clear. And, like and sometimes it reaches has it reaches tendrils and disintegrate you directly. Sometimes it can teleport to wherever you were. And when Brooke Adams falls asleep. She's. It's not like she falls asleep in a place where there has been a pod preparing for her. Exactly. But, right. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. That that's in the original too. They're in a mine shaft. They've run away, and they're in a mine shaft. And uh, uh, his his love interest falls asleep, and then because she's fallen asleep for an instant, she's immediately replaced in the same body by a body snatcher. Like it really doesn't make any sense. But speaking of Jeff Goldblum, though, it does give me a chance to go to the scene in this film, which. <laughs> Which Stacy, my wife, and I talk about most often. They're not even seen so much as location. So we saw this movie probably 15 years ago, and I hadn't seen it between now and then. But we regularly invoke Jeff Goldblum's mud bath spa because <laughs> it's is a horrifying location. I think this is the materially yeah. shittiest location of the 70s. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's, a, it's, it's a, nightmarish. It's nightmarish. It's a mud bath spa. The you enter into an through a through a kind of regular old street level entry retail door glass door into an area where you've got kind of a almost like where you'd pick up your shoes at a bowling alley kind of counter with yeah. wood paneling where you get your towel that's the smell that's the smell it has too yeah yeah and then you go to the back and in the back there's there's f some ferns I want to say and then there's all these plastic sheets like a murderer would hang in a garage <laughs> to cut, to keep the blood from spilling everywhere but, but what's green, behind there is worse. Of green. <laughs> Right, and behind there are these mud baths in in these tiled mud baths that are just absolutely horrible looking. They're just like utility sinks that yeah. people sit in in mud. <laughs> and so this comes up, this comes up with me and Stacy a lot. Any time we walk by a storefront, because you know any city has those weird storefronts where like it's a real estate office that's never open and it's dusty and the plants may be alive. Or it's it's a laundry, but right. it doesn't. It's not for you. It's like how and are they in business? You'll see some of those. Yeah, and they aren't really active businesses, but they aren't gone. And there'll be a lot of times there'll be like plastic sheeting or weird, 
weird blinds and we will just kind of briefly freeze and be like oh oh that's that's a jeff goldblum spa location that's not good let's let's not go in there so this movie has stayed alive for us for a long time because of this location's shittiness and terror. The Belichick Baths. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, one, you could just say they don't have a lot of money. They're trying to do a business that they believe in. They don't have money for good location or materials. So they're in this terrible place that looks like, like it should have on there mud bath $5.00. Drowning in mud bath, ten dollars. <laughs> Blended in mud bath, thirty-five. <laughs> yeah, it's just hard to believe that people come here to feel better. Like, yeah, how often yeah. do you feel to come and 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 just sit in that lighting and feel that stench and get the the shittiest massage by Veronica Cartwright? Have your feet slapped? And for all the for all the righteous shit people give things like goop. Like, I understand the appeal of the like cleanliness and the look and the feel and design of that kind of stuff. Yeah, you feel better looking at that shit. This place, it's right. the early stages basically of the kind of thing that, that that becomes something like goop, but it is so far from that. You're trying to already break the idea that mud is dirt and I'm getting into it to be clean. <laughs> You've already got that hurdle to get over, right? To cleanse myself, I'm going to get into literal dirt. So in order to sell that, you need everything around it to feel like purity, right? Not... Like, this looks like I'm getting, I feel like I'm stepping into an overflowing toilet. Nothing about this room looks like I'm not stepping into an overflowing toilet. Too much poo, too much poo, too much poo. You shouldn't have tried that last flush, man. Oh, it's so bad. It is, I will say, it's good to see Veronica Cartwright. It was. It I really was. Love her. She's, She's fantastic. very good. She's, She's great. very good. Uh, her, I think she's so expressive. Her face is so expressive. I think uh, I think she was my best, uh, my favorite performer in this in this yeah. film. And she also really made clear a lot of the things that she has the line about. Uh, well, of course we. And and then granted, she works where she works, which is obviously a condemnation <laughs> of uh, of um, the the organic kind of you know earthy movement. It'd have to be. I mean, they wouldn't have made that to go see. People are really these these places are going to be on fire when they come when this movie comes out, right? But she has the line that's completely valid. It validates almost the, uh, everything that they set up, worked so hard to make look so uh, avoidable. Is uh, when she says, uh, and of course they could get in. I mean, think about all the impurities in our world. Think, I mean, we eat junk food. We we eat junk. We breathe junk. Of course they could get in without us knowing it. And I thought that was a that was actually a, a nice a good thought because you're like yeah they could slip right in because we we don't even we wouldn't even notice it right we aren't even trying to keep anything out yeah we're not exactly it's kind of like putting everything on Facebook it's like I had a, a friend of mine um ha, is uh ha, his his parents have lineage from Russia and the other parent has a lineage from Mexico he he was having trouble actually dating because he wasn't on Facebook. He, and uh, people thought, what has he got to hide? Why isn't he? Why doesn't he have an online presence? Ooh, wow! And so he couldn't get dates because they couldn't look him up on, on, on Facebook and check him out. Just, the fact that he wasn't there made him think, made them think he had something to hide. So he was going to do it, and he, and his dad said, "Now I'm not telling you not to do it, but I just want you to know that your parents. This is the Russian side." Oh, no, 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 your, uh, your grandparents and great-grandparents fought a war 
to keep this information private from the government. And you guys are just putting it out there. So I just thought you should think about that. <laughs> so the, it makes me think that, you know, of course we wouldn't see any sort of uh, um, social media campaign to, to un, un, undermine our democracy. Cause it, it, we're just, we're just all out there anyway. We're not, well, it's a, we got nothing to hide. Just put it all out there. So of course we wouldn't notice anything. Everyone's doing it. We expect you all to do it. This is actually a great way to segue to something I've been curious about, which is the relationship of the 1950s film to this one. Cause I haven't seen the 1950s body snatchers in a while. I have a sense, I have a memory of, of what it was trying to say and what it was doing. There's two explicit, two that I know of, explicit call-outs to the film in this one. It's Don Siegel is a taxi driver. Mm. And um, and then early, like 35 minutes in, we get that scene from the end of the original one. They're yeah. already among us. They're here. Now, now, real briefly, when I remember, I remember that as a kid and I loved it because it was the first time we, I ever saw something like, hey, they're referencing this other movie. They're, they're, they're giving, it's a nice little callback to that movie and, and makes you almost kind of believe this is where that movie ended and it keeps going and this poor guy got killed. But I, I was really struck this time by the overt joke that they do right before. Did you remember what they're talking about, right? Right before you see Kevin McCarthy? He's telling a joke about British officers surrounded by Rommel. He's telling a joke and before it gets to the punchline, she goes, oh yeah, you did tell me this joke. And then he goes, oh, can I tell it to you again? Boom, cue Kevin McCarthy. So that whole scene was them saying, we've done this movie before. Can I, can we, can I tell you the story again? Ah, <laughs> and then Dan McCarthy shows up. That's great. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Siggy, you saw the original recently, more fairly recently, right? Yeah, I watched it right before I watched the remake. Oh, I wanted to. I didn't get a chance. I think the general take on it is that it is very much about the communist threat. But is it's multivalent. So that was interesting. So I was that's how I was um, I was remembering it before I watched it. I had I don't know if I've ever seen it before, to tell you the truth. But just by reputation, I thought it was a criticism of McCarthyism and uh, and fifties conformity. And then watching it, I'm like, oh no, this is. I guess I remembered it wrong. I misunderstood because this is clearly a critique of of creeping communism. My my memory of it is that it was a um, it was like an agent of McCarthyism almost was that it was a uh, it, it, well not not an agent of it so much as it was saying look the communists are among you they look like everyone you know they look like they could be your neighbor they might actually be your neighbor you know that's what that's what his rant at at the scene when he's on the highway and he, he's given that they're among yeah. us that that's really feels like communist infiltration and sleeper cells and. And stuff like right. that. So it was interesting. I, I did some reading to see um, about what the critical take on the time, and it was it was read both ways. Some some reviews were like, "Oh, really? this is a commentary on McCarthyism." Others were, "This is a paranoid take about paranoia of, of communists living among us." And some some reviews recognized both readings and said it could be read either way, and that's what makes it such a rich text. So it's that's why it's endured, like and not just descended into propaganda it's the colbert rapport of science fiction horror movies and it's interesting to, to read like the producers and the screenwriter the novelist uh, his novel only came out like a year or two before the the first movie they say well we didn't intend any of that I, it, it was just in a, a, a supposed to be a thriller yeah. a horror movie uh, the director has, has said he 
he intended that, but of course you would if you wanted to make yourself sound like uh, an artiste in a tour. Yeah. It, it's in a genre that is historically comments on society. It, that if you're if you're doing sci-fi, if you're doing horror, if you're not commenting on society, it better be damn good at just scaring you. Yeah, even if you don't mean to, if it, it should soak all that up. It should be able to be like the original novel of Body Snatchers. It should be able to, you can imprint your current uh, uh, dilemma uh, of the decade onto your onto that template. That's why I guess why when I go for monster uh, horror movies, usually usually creature features are the ones I prefer, just because you can overlay your your own. The monster usually is a stand-in for something. There's a little leeway depending on when you're watching it that you can attribute what that is to. Well, I watching Godzilla recently. I uh, I knew that Godzilla was in some ways a, a clear reckoning with what Japan had been through in the war. But the original, the, the original, original Godzilla. But watching it recently and realizing it's not implicit; it's explicit. And there's a firebombing of Tokyo yeah. in the movie, and I can't imagine watching that in 1953 in Japan. Right. The pain was still very raw. You one imagines. I can't talk about that movie because I've talked about it too much on this podcast and been been <laughs> reprimanded for this, it. This is uh, episode the fifth episode now. I think where we've uh, gone down this road. This is great. Uh, it's Music classic. box nineteen. It's a classic <laughs> for a reason. Now, so, nineteen seventy eight invasion of the body snatchers. I went. I did the same thing. Went reading the contemporary reviews to see what they were saying. It was a commentary on. And the picture was far muddier. That's, was, that's fascinating because that's what I would have guessed. That's right? interesting. Okay. Like there, there, a few themes came up again and again, but it was much less. Nobody was really making the case for it. And I didn't really, I, I couldn't draw a direct line. So I just wondered what you, what you both thought. I felt like, I feel like for me, the original Body Snatchers was much more clear in its intent. No, no, no. I take that back. It was muddier in its intent. Uh, as an effect on the audience. And I felt like this one was way clearer, in my opinion. Okay. Like, uh, I, I felt this to be a much bigger condemnation of government and, organi or and organizations that are against the individual. That's what I saw this as. Like which... Um... Like, basically, in this one, the people that are propagating the Red Scare are the pod people. That's what I saw in this one. But this is this is how is that? What are the institutions? Because um, like the Department of Health uh, and food inspectors detecting rat turds in uh, stew, <laughs> gleefully detecting rat turds in stew, like taking serious pure joy in doing so. Right. Uh, I do want to talk about at some point Donald Sutherland's uh, aggression and tenderness at the same time. But he's got that trench coat, so he's definitely a, a gumshoe in a way. And like, but yet he's got a rabid hunger and uh, relentless determination to take someone down. Not necessarily, you know, I'm going to take them down and I work for the health department. He's not protecting, he doesn't seem to be so much protecting the people as he is just wanting to get these guys, right? He works for the health department. Whenever there's an issue, he's like, we have to call the police. We have to call the mayor. We have to call this stuff. He's got a faith in the system. Okay. And then every time, and then every time he turns, they blow him off because they're, they're in, they're now pod people, but he, he, he's like, no, 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 this isn't right. So he's trying to work within a structure that no longer, that no longer operates and can't serve him, can't serve the people he's protecting. The system that would no longer 
values the process of which it was set up to do. Something I am currently experiencing in my own workplace right now. Submit this, uh, <laughs> submit this podcast episode in your HR report. <laughs> it's, it's the organization of the pod people that have taken over the institutions and have cut everybody off. And now they're just coming in to get everybody to make them think like you, because they even say at one point, the, the, the thing that um, watching these uh, foamy beings coming from uh, another planet, it almost seems like they are just, they're just spores. They're not necessarily conscious thoughts at this point that we think that we know of. Maybe they are, don't know, but they seem, they don't seem to, they didn't say, Hey, let's, let's go to earth. But when they get there and they start reproducing themselves as people, they say, this is better. They, they, they seem to have instantly have a knowledge of everything the other person knew. They know how things work. They're just emotionless about it. So in a way, it's almost like this is a better humanity than humans. So we're just going to do this. But I, I definitely think that the, um, that the movie certainly puts in Sutherland's faith in institutions that are now turned on its own people, knowing that people make up institutions. So when those people get corrupted, they turn to make, see, everyone, you all have to think like me. You all have to think like us. That's that's what I felt more in this movie than certainly in the fifties version. Well, so Levi, what was your interpretation? What was, what's this? What do you see the seventy eight version commentary on? You know how movies or other artworks live with you when you don't engage with them for a while, and you sometimes go back to them and realize they weren't quite what you remembered. My memory of this movie for a long time has been that it was an in a fairly conservative indictment of the idea of individualism that you could argue, have been kind of pushed to individual um, self-expression and self-exploration that you could argue have been pushed to its limits in San Francisco of this period. Going back to it, that wasn't what I saw this time. I see why I saw it, and I think there's elements of it there because of the inner, the scenes in which we see these these people are things like you see um, Brooke Adams' boyfriend, it, basically ignoring her because he's busy watching basketball by himself with his headphones on. When they go out, they're going out to a reading by a psychologist who's clear, clearly focused on helping people reach something in themselves. And more, it's not about a communal experience, really. And they see the the mud baths that are all about being by yourself and taking care of yourself. So I see some elements of that, but I don't see the same thing I took away from it or at least developed for myself over time from the first one of that being what is bringing the pod people on or that the pod people are some judgment on that. I'm actually not entirely sure what the politics or message of this movie end up being. I think it's some muddy middle there and probably as simple as this is an era where things are going wrong and it does feel like something's going to have to come along and correct it. We do not want it to be this. So watching watching the the movie, the 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 scene that really stuck out to me as okay, this has to be a keystone somehow is the really weird, enervating kiss, the kiss non kiss between Donald Sutherland and uh, Brooke Adams when they're on the run. Uh, I think Jeff Goldblum is already turned or maybe they're waiting for him to show up anyway they're like they're hiding and then they turn to that's each when other. the t-rex follows him right 
<laughs> uh, doesn't doesn't he not throw the flare right? And they're like away? hiding under a desk, so I think we're lot. in the Velociraptor uh, section of the of the movie. <laughs> and they turn to each other with their in deep shadow, uh, and their faces half lit. And they turn and they're they're gonna kiss. And it's always it's always been ambiguous up to this point. I don't remember if there was like a a, a direct reference that indicated that they had had a. An affair at one point. I think they didn't. I think the whole thing, my sense of it was the whole thing was Donald Sutherland obviously was all over uh, interested in her. Yeah. It did seem to be actually within the kind of bounds of that period being reasonably respectful of the fact she had a boyfriend, but was giving her shit because he was a jerk. Yeah. And so the boyfriend turning into a pop person and fleeing was not the worst thing that happened from his point of view. I got the feeling that they had been involved or had fooled around or something, and now they were friends. That that was the vibe Maybe I was so. getting. Um, although the, his weird non-eye contact when she comes over and he's chopping onions and uh, doesn't add any more proportions, but also makes her dinner, which is weird. He, he's, he's clearly making a one-person portion for his <laughs> dinner, but then he's like doesn't even throw any more in there and then and splits it with her. Anyway, the way the way he like has this conversation, he's clearly would be happy to have her over, but doesn't like yeah. make eye contact her with that whole time. Yeah. Like I read that as him trying to figure out how to, how to play this. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of uncertainty on both their parts. That scene where they're eating that dinner to me was clearly him being like, look, I'm going to be a good friend and I'm going to help you out with your boy troubles. Right. I want, cause I I'm invested in you. I like I, 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 you. You are a good person. I want you. You're my friend, and I want your relationship to go well. Having said that, I really want you to dump him and come with me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I can cook. Yeah, I will. Admit you can it, tell I'm sensitive by the loose knit and length of my sweater I'm wearing. I will admit it helped when I realized he wasn't actually her boss. That made it all a little better. Initially, I thought he was her <laughs> boss, and I was like, "Oh man, I know it was a different time, but man, but I don't think he's her boss." So. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. But I will say the number one thing I remember from this movie, from seeing it in in, in uh, junior high and high school, was the do the thing with your eyes. You're not crazy if you can do the thing with your eyes. And the thing she does, where her eyes vibrate and twirl, <laughs> makes her look fucking crazy. <laughs> right. And and I remember that especially because I met a guy at a summer camp one time who could do that, who could vibrate his eyes just by pulling them, like just by like. You know, he pulled. He could pull a muscle, or I can pull a nerve in his eye. Yeah, I can do that, but it gives me a headache. Okay, so the kiss. So now they're hiding under their desk, the and then it looks like, okay, this is it. They're going to find some kind of solace in each other. They're going to culminate uh, the relationship. It's going to, uh, you know, they're going to they're gonna realize consummate they need each other. Maybe consummate. You know, we'll see how far this goes. And then it's like, it's like two mannequins kissing. It's like they don't, neither one of them... Yeah. enjoys it they don't even really complete the kiss they don't they don't kind of acknowledge it in any way that it happened and they just pull apart and i'm like okay that was fucking weird and that's the thematic key to this whole movie i feel like and i think i think this is a movie that's about people who can't make emotional connections anymore like you just don't know how for whatever reason they're they're seeking self help. They're seeking therapy. They're they're medicating. 
they're ignoring each other. They're watching TV with fucking headphones on. Who sits alone in a living room and watches a basketball game with headphones on? A bad boyfriend. It's a, it's a, but when, when no one else is home, like it's a weird, like right. everyone's isolated themselves and living alone in apartments and not really having, no one's in a happy relationship. They're, when they're, she comes home, she's finding a plant, she's framed in a doorway, and she's talking to somebody that we can't see because they're not, it's like they're not occupying the same emotional space or the same physical space, right? And uh, like our villain, Leonard Nimoy, we have no idea at what point in the story he's become a pod person because as far as we can tell, right. <laughs> as with Jeffrey, there's really no difference. And I think that's what the movie's really about. Yeah. Is that that's great. When yeah. they get when they get taken over, there isn't actually a difference. And when Donald Sutherland and uh, I always forget her name, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, are having, <laughs> oh. uh, when they're having that that kiss, they might as well both be pod people at that moment. One of them, one of them could be, and it wouldn't make any difference, right? They would have that. They would have shared the right. same. That moment would have happened the same way. It would have played so out the same way. This actually way. does link up with the way I have been thinking about it for years, but it's it, it it's much more articulate that this is a a kind of conservative reading of where individual self involvement gets you. That that you lose the ability to connect, you lose the ability to form a community. But then I guess what are the pop or, people doing? Are they stepping in and be, something's got to fill that gap? Or, uh, like, everybody lives within a system that has so drained us and okay. depleted us that we all need some kind of healing that we're not getting. Right, so we, it's know? not possible. We're looking for something we can't have. Yeah. Or we're doing it wrong. I don't know. Well, yeah, because you've got, you've got a culture that has gone toward, okay, free love, cast off all responsibility, and all the change that, that repressed us for so long, that sexually repressed us, that emotionally repressed us, to uh, just cast them off, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. But then when it casts all these responsibility of relationship, even just interpersonal relationship, not just romantic ones or, or, or fidelity or whatever, um, you're lonely, you're isolated, like you said. And then what's, what's there to fill the gap is helicopters. What's there to fill the gap <laughs> is, um, they're uh, after you. Uh, yeah, exactly. Is consumerism or is, but they didn't do a whole lot of consumerism in this one. Other than maybe the basketball game headphones or whatever, but like, but yeah, it really um, was specific to its locale that way. It, consumerism wasn't the problem so much as these other kind of pursuits. Right, it's all these other pursuits exactly. And then, and then what? If you think about, it, you just made me think of this. The pod people were freaky because they weren't acting the way they normally do, and they kept saying what was so strange was that these that Jeffrey was going off with all these people she didn't know, and they were working together and they were kind of they understood each other and that was the creepy part right yeah these connections hey, yeah him, it was That's strange right. to see him interacting with people yeah <laughs> this there were connections there that shouldn't have been there because jeffrey's a dentist and doesn't do that he nobody you know goes out right. and talks to people and interacts with people and cooperates and does things that was really weird. That in a way reminded me of uh, Twenty One Jump Street when Jonah Hill, the older cop, calls a high schooler on the phone, and she goes, "I think it was Brie, Brie Larson." She goes, "You're calling me? Why are you calling me? No, it's like everyone texts, but you're why are you calling me? <laughs> you don't want to talk to me? No, I do. I'm just wondering why you're calling. That's me. how most people act when I call them now. Yeah, 
So it's just, yeah, it's, it's weird that it's like, why are you, why are you reaching out in an interpersonal way? <laughs> By the way, back to basketball, historical note, Golden State Warriors in the uh, spring 1978 playoffs did not make, did not participate, did not make the playoffs. I wondered about that and did not check it. But no. in 1977, they did and they. It's uh, a fiction fantasy. They can they do whatever played. they want. Defeated the Detroit Pistons two games to one, and then uh, fell to the Los Angeles Lakers in seven. In and round Jeffrey two. Jeffrey gave his tickets to some some of his patients for one of those games. Yeah, I hope the patients saw a good game before they got turned into pod people. Well, you know, light light bulbs don't turn into flame flame throwing grenades when they drop on things. So you know, it's all there's a little bit of. I did feel this movie really did uh, have a slump when it got to its more actiony part. Like the first half, yeah. when it gets to its third act, it really kind of drags at that point. Not just because of the the action wasn't up to par with what we've seen before, mm. but just because they we didn't know what they were doing. They were just kind of... The question is whether you can stop the pod people. The answer is you can't stop the pod people, so watching them try to stop the pod people isn't very interesting. It's also wimpiest use of an axe in a film. Yeah. <laughs> I think... The, the way he does it, grabs the rope and tinks the axe against the rope on the yeah. railing. Yeah. He's with, like, choking with up one on hand. the axe. You don't do that. You know, <laughs> it's wimpier than just grabbing the axe and shoving it through some door handles. Like that's a lot more badass. Than that said, the end redeems a lot. The last shot. You yeah. Mean? The like last. The sequence? last. The last two minutes, three minutes, makes up for a ton, for me. Okay. Well, uh, it did it not work for you. I would have appreciated that during the credits, some Smokey and the Bandit style blooper, <laughs> like a gag reel. That would have been good. <laughs> so, Siggy, you say it's not, it I, didn't. I just watched Smokey and the Bandit this week, and there isn't a blooper reel in the... There wasn't the DVD I watched. Yeah, that was start with uh, part two. Um, or, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I bet I'm thinking of Cannibal Run. Or, I or bet Cannibal Run. Sorry. Or yeah, Cannibal Run is definitely has the blooper reel. Smoking the Bandit ends with a freeze frame on a f- frame that doesn't doesn't matter doesn't yeah. matter or look good. I, I yeah. got uh, I watched it last night and I I got some things to say. <laughs> okay, we'll get to that. The ending sequence. I'm going to say right here and now the sh- squealing, the shrieking pod people does not work for me. I think it's I think it's anti scary. Uh, okay, I can see as a co- yeah. it's less scary than if they just act like people. It it worked it worked for me as a kid when I hadn't really seen the whole movie. But when I watched the whole movie, I was like, I thought the whole point was they were emotionless. What's going on with this? And so remember, they really freak out when he smashes his own pods face in with the garden hoe, and they all go. Whoop! And I'm like, wait a minute, that, I thought that, they were emotionless. You, you want to give us that scream again because that's that's what. Oh, oh, sorry. Do I need to do the whole sentence? No, just when you do the shriek, you repeat it. That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's a good scream. You're a pod person. Do it again. I'll be quiet. <laughs> it's like when they, when they, here, here I go, here I go. So, so when he chops his own face off with a uh, garden hoe, the guy, the, they freak out and they go, and you're like, why? I thought they were emotionless. They're, they're showing emotion. And you know what? They do say at one point, don't they? they? Don't they say we were on a planet and we ran out of resources, so we came here? Didn't they say that in the movie? 
Or did I dream that? Consumed all the yeah. life forms. They consumed everything somehow. So they have a memory then of of their past life, which, as far as plants go, that one looked pretty shitty too. <laughs> Does the bait and switch itself not work for you? Like when you do you remember? Because when I first saw it, it totally did. Oh, finding out that he's a yeah. A oh yeah. Person. Yeah. No, that that worked, and her uh, Veronica Cartwright's terror at that. Um, was great. Yeah, she sold she, that. She definitely sold it. The um, the grossness of Donald Sutherland's mouth really sells it. <laughs> yeah. And then that's the final image is you zoom yeah, into his. In. He, he turns around and he's, I mean, everybody's shrieking and they usually do have like a normal shrieking mouth. And then Donald Sutherland can't do anything normal with his mouth. <laughs> uh, so he does like a mumbly mouth kind of shriek. Or, you know, like he can't. He can't get open all the way. And then we cut to Veronica Cartwright, and we cut back, and it looks like when you've been to the dentist, you're at the dentist chair, and you think you have your mouth open all the way, but, like, every few minutes he has to tell you, please open wide. I'm like, I don't know wide. Oh, no, I went slack a little bit there. Like, he's gone slack in his screen. Like, his mouth doesn't open as wide the second time, and that's what we're zooming into. Oh, he's probably having it. And yeah. it's just it's like his lips are curled inward, and his, like, bushy mustache is hanging down over his lips, and it's all just... I mean, it's, do it's you know really, how much how much time he he had to stand there with his mouth open just to light it? <laughs> he probably it, had to be there forever. The, going, it, it rivals the Belichick baths and uh, the quivering ham babies <laughs> as the the most like viscerally disgusting thing in the film. I'm sure he'll be happy to hear that. We have, and I have him right here. Donald, why don't you come on out? <laughs> Can I tell a story about ham babies real quick? I would totally hear a story about ham babies. Okay. So when I was preparing to wed the uh, the lovely Seymour Lamar, well, she was not Seymour Lamar back then. I don't like where this is going. <laughs> she, she was, this kind of broke down along uh, gender roles, uh, traditional gender roles, I'm, I'm afraid to say, is in that the preparing and planning for the wedding, uh, she did... Uh, uh, the the lioness's share, and uh, and I I was actually I was coordinating a, a reunion for uh, the communications college of Northwestern University, also known as CRC. I, I was working on something I'd already committed to doing. Anyway, the one thing I was determined, or at least I acted like I was determined for the wedding, is that I thought there should be a ham baby. Specifically. I was like, well, what do you want to do for, like, tossing the bouquet and doing the garden? She says, you're not pulling a, a, a garter off my leg. You're not doing that and throwing that to the groomsmen. I'm like, good, because I think that's a bit cliche. And here's what I want to do instead is when I go under the, the wedding dress, we'll do a magic trick. And what we'll have <laughs> hidden under the chair, I'll have prepared a ham baby. I'll pull it out from under the chair. It'll look like it's coming from between your legs. We'll have a a sausage links going from its belly, like an umbilical cord, and I'll ceremonially cut the sausage links, and then throw the ham baby over my shoulder, and then all the groomsmen will tear it apart and devour it. <sighs> Were your groomsmen going to be dogs with hobo faces? And it, will, and it will be such a refreshing change of pace from... <laughs> <laughs> this was one of the Twilight books, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, this is a horrible image. And she really didn't have a sense of humor about this. I, 
I was like, I, I'll, I'll get, I'll make it dry. I'll, I'll towel it off so the juices won't get oh on your God. dress. I'll, I'll make it nice. Oh, we tend, we tend to not think about the idea that they, they might take umbrage at the, at the idea that the perception is, is that this wet ham baby has come out of her, <laughs> and was that Cronenberg that's, that's the part that she sweating? probably objected to. Not so much at getting on her dress. My point is, I finally tried to make a contribution to the wedding plans, and I'm rejected. <laughs> so we know where this relationship's going. Yeah, we know. Obviously, obviously, I'm not welcome here. I will be. I'll be off planning the bachelor party. <laughs> you, you take your ham, baby. Yeah, and you know what? We did it at the bachelor party, didn't we? We went bowling with Seymour and, and the bridesmaids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, reviews of the 1978 said it was all about uh, self-help and uh, a populace obsessed with uh, psychiatry and the self-help checkout aisle or something like that. But they never really drew a line to what they meant by that. Well, and I think the the tough thing there is figuring out what what then do the pod people represent. Yeah. If, If you're critiquing what Sutherland and his friends are doing with their lives, it's okay. So it's opened them up to some kind of them and their society up for some kind of takeover. But what does the takeover itself represent? And is it a good thing if you're critiquing them? I don't, it's not presented that way. Yeah. I, I think it's a little, still a little muddy. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I do, I do think the whole chase sequence is, it feels that movie's like 20 minutes too long on the whole. I think the, the 55 version is uh, a superior is a, is a better crafted film. Mm, I really do. Hot the take. scene that comes to me from the 55 version is if I'm remembering correctly, they've there's a handful of them. They figured out there's clearly some problem. In fact, there may even be a pod in their garden, and they have a barbecue in the greenhouse. No, yeah. it's while they're having the barbecue that they discover it. Okay, but, as soon as they discover it, then they immediately are like, "We got to get out of town." Okay, but they were aware there was something wrong before the barbecue. They only knew of one body, and uh, the authorities had already told them they. They okay. were mistaken about it. The body had been found somewhere else, and they were all crazy. And so they're they're all trying to figure out what what to make of that. Again, I've misremembered this to suit my own purposes. To think of the fifties as being so straight laced that <laughs> you're just gonna you, you got to eat, so you might as well have a barbecue. The thing that doesn't make a lot of sense in both cases, but is done a little better in the seventy eight, is we found a mysterious body. Uh, either in the Belichick baths or uh, just uh, King Donovan, who's a really good actor in the in the fifty version, he's he plays the same part as the Jeff Goldblum part. Uh, he just finds a body in his closet, and he thinks it's a dead person. And but they all just, just agree that they're not going to call the police until they understand what's going on with it. Which is a it's, it's a leap. It's a it's a, yeah, it's a narrative re- convenience that is hard to justify. There are reasons to distrust the police, as we all know. I'm not sure that would be a circumstance where I would worry that much right. about it. The Belichick Baz are like, this place is miserable enough. Nobody's <laughs> ever going to set foot in here if, if they hear there was a body. But <laughs> but the, the King Donovan's private home, his tiki, he has a tiki bar in his basement. You do have one more thing to say about the hobo dog, though, oh, right? Just that I I actually managed to forget. I knew when they ran into the hobo and the dog that it was significant and it wasn't significant just as an indicator of like local color in San Francisco and Donald Sutherland's routine and his friendliness with people. But I forgot why. And so when that hobo-faced dog showed up, I was not terrified, but kind of 
disgust horrified again, fresh, like I'd never seen it before. It, it's a moment of pure, it's the kind of absurdity that breaks your mind in half. It's not even a very good effect, but it's just so wrong. No, it gets a reaction out of you. Even if you're like, you go, oh my God, oh, that's dumb. Because if you think about it, I, I, at the time I wasn't, I always, I, when I saw that in the original, when I was a kid, I was like, why, why, why did that one, why is that one different? Everyone, no one else is like that. Why is that one different? And then when I'm watching it this time, apparently it's just because Donald Sutherland kicks it as he walks and you by. And some red steps spurt out. Yeah, like it's damaged somehow. So he, you would have to so, kick It's damaged, so it repairs itself by grabbing the dog? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was. That makes even less sense. Unclear what's going on. As, getting back to the connection, thank you, Wade, for reminding us what this episode is about. Um, so, so getting back to uh, the lack of emotional connections, I thought when you were talking about the the connection between the two films, this and the Bad News Bears, I thought that was going to be it. About how in Bad News Bears, a lot of it is about people who don't have genuine emotional connections and can only find camaraderie through this through this game. And uh, and don't even as far as we can see, don't have their home life doesn't even exist. We don't even see anybody outside of work or play. There's there's nobody goes home. If they do, they they it's like they cease to exist. And that actually came through for me a lot more clearly this time watching it than I had seen before. That that the again to some degree these kids have been left on their own to do their own thing i think that is very indicative that especially buttermaker's team they i guess they're parents in the stands but mm-hmm. they aren't participating and you don't get these kids show up on their own they leave on their own they're they're on their own and no one seems to care yeah. and i think the same same thing in buttermaker's transition his his character emotional journey in this movie shows that to some degree he he goes from having no emotional connection at all to through this game developing some i think it's still unclear whether that's going to hold mm-hmm. over time but Matt right. pulls it off really well mm-hmm. but he also feels that responsibility mainly through his rejection and rivalry with the other coach right because in the way you kind of feel like, okay, we gotta, we, I, I can't do this as a team anymore. I, I really need to care. So he steps it up. But the other coach that he has this um, tiff with that's egging him to basically just drop out because of their embarrassments, like when, when he's pushing them to win, you want to win, right? This is why you want to win because you want to show them that you guys aren't losers. And they're just like, they're like, we just, we, we just want to play. Right. He's, he's, He's exercising his own therapy through them is because he never got out of minor, minor league ball. Right. So, so, and then again, you know, as a kid, this was a family movie, even though they have lots of stuff in this movie that are, is it shouldn't never be in a family movie. And, and I, and I, and I liked you go, oh, well, different time. But honestly, I, I think this wasn't a movie for adults. I don't think this was a movie for kids. I don't think this was ever intended to be a kid's movie because this is a movie about adults working out their shit on top of kids. And then, uh, and forgetting that the kids actually matter. And so like, uh, and, and I think Roger Ebert wrote in his review at the time, he gave it three stars out of four and called it a, uh, quote, an unblinking scathing look at competition in American society. That was his big takeaway. But, um, I think more so to me, 
is just emotional connection to the people around you. Like you're like, like these two movies both are talking about is that, you know, yes, the other guy was more competitive, but our maker couldn't give a crap in the beginning. And then he sees, he sees it as a duty, but then figures the only way that these kids are going to feel good is if they beat that other team and not paying attention to what they actually need. But he's, it's not, he's not doing it because he thinks it'll make them feel good. Is is because it'll make him feel good, right? Make yeah. him feel good, right. Yeah. And his his bursts of violence in that movie are incredibly effective. Yeah. Like when he throws his beer on Tatum O'Neill, that was more violent than anything I've seen in any movie <laughs> uh, of late. Uh, it's wholly, I mean, it was really shocking. It's wholly believable, even as it's also completely surprising. Yeah. We don't expect him to do that. That's not what we've seen, even at his kind of most agitated. And it's terrifying. Yeah. 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 And un, you're putting and that you're putting that position as a kid. That feeling as a kid of, of you're being treated unjustly yeah. by an adult is just a terrifying feeling because you you're yeah. powerless. It's so much. Wait, you did say this is not a kids movie. Yeah. I think that is the thing that I when I'm describing bad news bears to people, the first thing you have to do is explain. Yeah, you you have a sense of what this movie is. That's not what it is. It it should have just been a dumb kids movie. It shouldn't have been a good movie that stands on its own as something interesting, but it does. But it is also, I think, still a kid's movie because the thing it does that I recognize that I think I would have seen as a kid is inhabits the physicality of kids. Yeah. So and the the and the way that kids have to relate to adults. So something like what you were saying, Siggy, about the sense of being treated unjustly and of the adults around you just doing stuff that you are simultaneously part of you is saying, well, they're the adults, and part of you is saying, but they're obviously wrong. But then also the watching the kids themselves the way that Kelly Leak is a superstar, part of that is that he's talented. Part of it is that he gives us this aura of cool that's tied to that. Part of it is he's bigger. And this is an age where the bigger kids, that makes a difference. Yeah. And that really comes through in this movie, that that relationship to the physical world when you're a kid and the way that, that the difference between you and other kids and you and adults and your various kinds of hierarchies and relationships are still something you're trying to figure out as you go along, even as those are changing all the time. Yeah. And I think it does that really well in a way that felt deeply familiar to me from childhood. Yeah. And like, there's a uh, mini version of that, that the really affecting scene where Tanner has nothing but contempt for lupus until somebody sees somebody else pick on him. And now lupus is part of my family. And so I have to stick up for him and cap off the scene by still expressing my contempt for him <laughs> and it is it's that thing too of the child in childhood so rarely do you get to choose the group of people you're with you get to make some choices at the margins but you're choosing yeah. among the kids around you or among the kids on your block and to watch that play out in a situation like this where right tanner is affirmatively bringing lupus into the fold because these guys are turds paul f Tompkins was talking to cool up on his show uh spontaneous nation doing the interview at the beginning and uh, she said something about her when her childhood asked about her childhood. And he, she said, I was mad. And he goes, and he was really, and he goes, yeah, I was just mad all the time. And he goes, she goes, he goes, I mean, you're not a mad person now, but I completely believe that because that's what childhood is. It's being angry at being powerless. And I thought, yeah, that is, you know, the, the, when you start to get a sense of the world, you realize you have you are completely powerless within it, 
to much of the degrees. And you just there's just a lot of anger at that. And then the wickedness when you find out you have power over somebody else and choose to exploit it, right? Right. And actually, that's something interesting in the relationship Buttermaker has with the team even before he comes to realize what he should be doing with and for them is there's a way in which even what, as he orders them around a lot, he's also treating them as equals. Yeah. And in, to some degree, that's in, in it's that's a very 70s thing. He's treating them kind of like little adults. Yeah. But also, he's just, he doesn't, uh, he has a different position in the social hierarchy than the other people around them. And that does seem to open him up to the idea that you're just going to talk to these kids like you talk to kids. It also probably ties the fact he doesn't have kids. He's not in a situation where he has authority over kids generally. So he's just going to go go do his thing, and they're there. The thing that really strikes me about that movie, I watched it with my, with my boys, and uh, I hadn't seen it in a long time, so I tried to to frame it ahead of time. Like you're going to see people, you're going to see demonstrations of bad behavior in a way that you wouldn't see in a kid's movie these days, but it has a good, a good message. And kids doing racial epithets at each other. Yes. Yep. Yep. And we had to talk (laughs) about that. Um, But the, the thing that really strikes me about the movie that is really different and that we really had to talk about afterwards is how much is unsaid because it's all said in the kids faces. And 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 Walter mm. Matthau's face too, and it's the like. Yeah. I think the key like visual element for that movie is just the look of recognition, of the when the kids like realize yeah. who Buttermaker is and how he's using them, how he's not he's not who he said he was, right? He's not an, a real coach. He doesn't actually care. He's not trying to help them get better. And then when he is trying to push them to win, that he doesn't care about having fun or even let, letting them play the game. Right. Like Kelly Leak, when he orders right. Kelly Leak to, to make all the yeah. plays and Kelly Leak, we're used to him mouthing off. Right. And it doesn't seem like he had any, any problem, but he's so overwhelmed by realizing who Buttermaker is that we just get like long shots of Kelly Leak staring at Buttermaker and not saying a word. And then later, Buttermaker realizing who he's become and watching the other coach and how he acts, which for me is like the body snatcher moment is, <laughs> totally. you know, Kelly Leak realizing Matthau's a, a, a body snatcher and then Matthau realizing that he's become a body snatcher, right? Yeah. It, you're right. That's actually a great way to think about yeah. it. It is a series of moments of recognition for good and bad. And, and so much of it is the played out on the faces and Matthew is the standout. His face does so much in this movie with the moments when he's near tears for reasons, good or bad. Yeah. It's right there. And, but then the kids too, this is some great acting, great directing of children. These, the, you know, there's yeah. a, the occasional bit of flatness that you get with a cast of child actors this big, but, but they're really making it work. Yeah, it is, and it's it's very sophisticated. And uh, it, it was it was funny talking to my kids afterwards, like how much of it they just didn't pick up on, and they they were just reading like a really surface, reading it as a really surface text, which I I think they've wouldn't have been trained to do anything else by kids' movies that have come out in the last twenty years. And then there's also the very straightforward, but also feels very much of its period, fact that they don't win, just like Rocky doesn't win. This is this is not the period of that sports movie. And this came out eight months before Rocky. Yeah. I took note of that in that both movies have this thing of, well, we didn't win, but 
we won through self-actualization and we recognize that. And what do you guys think? I'm curious. What do you guys think of the beer victory at the end when he opened, he not just about the modern day judgment of giving alcohol to kids, just the, the, the things that he's been drunk the whole time. He's drinking the whole time. I like the fact that he didn't necessarily cure himself of alcoholism through this process, but that he was drunk the whole time and he grabbed a beer out of his cooler when he was about to give up and then he put it back in his cooler when he realizes, no, I got to do something about this. And you go, okay, now we've seen him make a shift, right? But then at the end, his, uh, a victory for them is to show that they've elevated is to give them beer. What do you think of that? What is that? How did that play for you? He doesn't pour bourbon in it. So <laughs> right. that's a step in the right direction. <laughs> He's given them the light version. <laughs> It's the kids' version. Wait. No, no, it's straight beer. It is. It is such a strange thing to see, and I guess I don't know that it works thematically, but I think it works as an ending because there's a certain aspect of it that's just fuck it. This is fun, and and if of its period. Oh, that he was just like they're, they're ball players. They played their best. They get beer because that's what ball players do. I think that was kind of what his uh, what that intent was, but you're right. I don't think it jives thematically with a lot of things it was doing up to that point. I mean, if 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 Buttermaker had sworn off drink, it would have felt like bullshit because that's just not going to happen in that context. Yeah. So would, I don't know that. No. I don't know that this ending costs you anything. It is it is just weird. But I also every time I see it, I smile. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I guess it's reinforcing the the theme that that you whatever it is you're doing you should be doing it to I don't know the uh, you should be doing it as an expression of the self rather than because someone else is demanding it of you. Well, actually that would work cuz mostly what the kids do with it, they sip it then they pour it on each other. Like the kids are actually doing the thing that makes more sense for them to do right. with beer because beer tastes like crap when you're 10, you know? Yeah. In a way, that kind of veers from body snatchers in a way in, in the fact that the formalism of the other team, the, the competitive nature to stick to the rigors of, of each, each time the other team won, they would always do that little cheer to, to quote-unquote honor the other team, but it really was to ridicule them. And then these guys... They were going to act how they wanted to act. So the rigorous structure of this uh, ball club produced the type of guy who would go out and punch his kid down in the front of everybody. And instead, these kids being able to play the game but then act with their own individualist expression did not act that way. So I don't know. Maybe that's saying something. That reminds me of a couple moments I don't want to miss in this movie that I love so much. One is Engelberg, Engelberg flipping the guy off while he's batting. And when he's on the base, it's just Engelberg with his quiet bird <laughs> is a beautiful thing. It's so much fun to see. Uh, I would, I would like to have that image like just available to me on my phone regularly <laughs> when I need it. I, I would. I found Engelberg to be a very complicated figure for me, just because he was at once a figure I wanted to relate to, having you know being his size and and being thought of the way he was thought of. But then he was also just a rabid asshole at the same time. <laughs> like he was aggressive to people that we didn't really see a need for him to be aggressive to in a cathartic way, you know? And so it was kind of, I, I had a lot of mixed emotions about Engelbert. Then there's also, there's the scene when the, 
pitcher on the Yankees refuses to pitch in, or refuses to do anything with the ball anymore when he's got the ball on the mound. It's so well put together because you realize maybe even more quickly than the players realize because you're watching a movie that there's something happening here. But watching the Bears realize it is really fun because you see this in sports, that moment of recognition that something like there was an errant throw and, oh, I've got to take off. But this is like the slow-mo version of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I would have wanted one extra shot in there. I wanted to see Engelbert who just went up there and immediately flipped off the guy. It was being whatever. And then just have that wild throw at his head. I don't think, I don't recall seeing Engelbert's reaction to his dad coming, Vic Morrow coming out and punching his son down. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Remember seeing a reaction for him. I would like to have seen that because a lot of kids have that feeling of like, Oh my God, that was my fault. Uh, Yeah. Cause I was involved somehow, you know? You know, I would like to have seen a little bit of sympathy from him having come out and been so antagonistic and then, you know, that happened and then him kind of like not knowing what his place now is in that. That would have been nice. One other thing I feel like I should point out, we did watch two movies with broken car windshields in them, driving around with a broken windshield. Oh, my gosh, that's right. I completely forgot about that. They don't bother to get them fixed either because no. they're like, hey, this is the 70s. Windshields are shitty now. <laughs> right. What am I going to do? I'm going to get this car fixed? Come on, look at this car. It also doesn't have a trunk. He doesn't have a cover on his trunk. Buttermaker. I don't know if you watched it recently, Levi, but Siggy and I both watched Smoking the Bandit recently. It's been a year and a half or so, but I'm there. Now that, I don't recall having a cracked windshield, but it did have a beautiful shot of a destroyed windshield. <laughs> Smoking the Bandit has, uh, has come up previously and i happened about it accidentally i was at my parents and i'm like let me see what they have on free uh on demand uh that's from the 70s i haven't seen it and it's not a period movie all their 70s movies were period movies except smoking the bandit in every which way but loose and i picked smoking the bandit because it's something that comes up a lot in conversation with levi it does yeah (laughs) so i thought i'll educate myself and so i'm watching it i'm like well i don't think this fits in with with Levi's thesis at all about the material shittiness of the seventies, or at least that um, there's something about the characters who f- deeply feel that there's something wrong with the era that they're in because the characters in smoking the bandit seem to think that the time that they're having is awesome. Right. I, I think that's right. Yes. Right. But I was and, thinking and who about knows what lot. planet Jackie Gleason is on. <laughs> 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 what Buford T justice who knows what he thinks the world should be. So, so I've been thinking about it a lot and I'm I'm starting to think of it I've started to think of it as the exception that proves the rule. Um and I'll say I'll say why. Um so like it opens with these very loving shots of the bandits semi truck which we Yeah, they're beautiful the actually, yeah. drive, right? But it it the the movie the camera loves this truck. Thinks this is an awesome uh, awesome, not only like materially, like with its awesome custom paint job on the trailer and just the power of its engine, but just like somehow emblematic of Americana or specifically the South, like Southern culture in a way. Uh, and then it loves his Firebird Trans Am, which is like a weird, for me, like a funny like punchline car to like make an awesome car. Not quite the IROC Z28. Of its era, but kind of in that camp. Like, it's not a Dodge Challenger. Where, the shine came off that car quick. Right. It's not like a classic uh, a car you would revere in the same way uh, it's did today. It did not achieve timelessness uh, in, in the same way as, as, as other 
this other class of cars. And the and the characters are all just having a great time. They love they love their clothes. They love their suits. You know, they love each other's clothes. Uh, the the Texas millionaires love their their colorful suits. And it it made me really think about how um, well a like what what are the reasons this movie doesn't fit in and and one of them is that all the characters are basically acting like children the entire time and so they're just not aware of anything <laughs> yeah. they have no they have no self awareness yeah. whatsoever <laughs> and they 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 nor are they obligated to have one because there's no consequences or ramifications for anything that happens <laughs> That's 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 also true. They're either they're either cartoon characters or they're just outright children or have like dedicated themselves to a lifestyle where they can continue to acting like like children, right? So there's that, and then there's like the the um, the, the class and regional parts of it where I wondered if what you were talking about with material shittiness wasn't more of an urban phenomenon or a, uh, a, a middle-class or upper-class phenomenon, just because that's where either the new fashions were coming in in a timely way, and they just, like, trickle out to the, the rural areas more slowly and more gradually, and they're kind of at a delay, and they blend together a little bit more. Uh, they don't turn over uh, as, as sharply. But also, just the rate of accumulation is lower because of because of the class and they're not materialistic in the same way. And a lot of the locations, the, the choking pukes uh, and gas stations that, <laughs> that they stop at along the journey, they look sh- shitty. They look materially shitty, but in a way that you would still see them shitty now. Right. Right. And in a way that they would be enjoyed in, in a shitty way that in which they would be enjoyed for being shitty. It is specifically a shittiness tied to pov- regional poverty, I think. Yeah, not necessarily direct immediate poverty, but yeah. but to being a poorer region. This is definitely the least shitty of the three movies. In fact, I didn't even look at this movie thinking of, I was going, I don't really see anything shitty here, mainly because it was looking through a period of uh, a, a locale that is most like my childhood as where I grew up. So like I had a sense of fondness for it, even though it is economically depressed. And so it was nice to see, in my opinion. And I, I'm, I'm perplexed by the popularity of this movie mainly just because each every moment is the same as the moment that came before. <laughs> and I mean, every joke is the same. It never changes. It has a kind of a gravy quality that way. There's no. Yeah, but I form. think I, I think I think its complete lack of demand on you is what what its appeal was. And and there may not be. I'm not saying that in a judgy way because I actually enjoyed watching it quite a bit, but I was frustrated by the fact that I'm watching the same damn thing every two seconds and being just perplexed why, why it was so popular because it's not, it's not demanding anything. It's not, it's not, it's not showing me anything new at any moment and anything that I think, Oh my God, they're going to have to deal with that later. Never have to deal with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> or I'm, even the, the very fact that they had the challenges is to make sure the truck doesn't get in trouble. In the end, the truck does something that calls attention to itself that would get it in trouble, and nobody cares. <laughs> they got the cores there. That Wade. doesn't. They got the cores there. All right, whatever. Did you know that this movie, at the time, made in in nineteen seventy five uh, six dollars, or. Yeah, nineteen seventy-six dollars. Seventy-seven. Yeah, seventy-seven dollars. Seventy-seven dollars. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it made a hundred and twenty-six million dollars adjusted for inflation. 
It is the 77th highest grossing movie domestically of all time, having made $527 million. It made over half a billion dollars in adjusted for inflation. Smokey and the Bandit. This is a segue to me because (laughs) a couple thoughts from here. One, Smoking the Bandit was released on May 27th, 77. What was released two days earlier? Star Star Wars. Wars. They were the number one and number two movies in the box office that year. They could not be more different. Yeah. Also, which one of them was nominated for Best Editing by the uh, Motion Picture Academy? Anybody want to guess? It's only one of them. Are you telling me it's... It's Smokey and the Bandit? Smokey and the Bandit. I'm willing to believe you. Which now, I, I think this was the Bohemian Rhapsody, um, you, yeah. made, <laughs> you made a shit sandwich out of shit award. <laughs> but I will say, in, in defense of Smokey and the Bandit, and as far as why it works, it, it's, it's charm. It's, well, one thing. It is. Hal Needham never met a car he couldn't make seem interesting on film. And two. Is that Count Megaforce? Okay, maybe never a stretch. I, I was thinking about a, a, an article that former Major League pitcher Pat Jordan wrote about Burt Reynolds for TV Guide in 89 that starts with the line, it was just a wink, but it, it defined the rest of his career. Yeah. They told me he, I couldn't do it, he says. It would break down the wall between the actor and his audience. But the movie was just a cartoon, Smokey and the Bandit, Cotton Candy. I just wanted to say to the audience, I hope you're having as much fun as I am. So I looked in the camera and I winked. The rest of the article is about how Burt Reynolds coasted on that for the rest of his career, yeah, and, until Boogie Nights, basically. And then uh, uh, Stuntman Mike does the same. I, I take the Stuntman Mike wink to the camera as being a direct reference to to that wink in uh, Death Proof. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, totally. And over the course of ninety minutes in 1977, if you were probably half baked at the movie, that worked beautifully. Oh, I'm sure it's something that I would uh, recommend not doing and i i loved it i thought it was it's entirely appropriate <laughs> i mean the movie seems to, uh, again is all about charm it seems to have gained its popularity through uh one it's locale celebrating a part of our population that isn't uh often celebrated and also setting up that cartoonish dichotomy between cops and citizens where the cops are just there to bust people to make themselves feel good like, they have no other purpose. Uh, they're just buffoonish thugs who are trying to make your life hard. And so we get to laugh at them for that and then celebrate how great it is to fuck them over. You know, this was 77. Blues Brothers came out in 80. And I was noticing, as I was struck with the deja vu of watching these cop cars and this one car that seemed to have a lot of personality. So I wonder if Smoking the Bandit had a big influence on the Blues Brothers. However, the Blues Brothers, I never not knew where that car was at any time. Spatially, it all works great, except for a couple of liberties they take. But in Smoking the Bandit, I don't know. I can't get a sense of where anybody is. They just kind of throw everything together. Yeah. They're, they're over here, then over there, then suddenly there. Like, to think they did best editing is just, a, a, wow, that's almost as um, crazy as the quote I, I read that said, from the Hollywood Reporter review from 1977, it says the film has been uh, attractively photographed yeah. by Bobby Byrne, which, in comparison to our other two films, absolutely. Which means it has two attractive leads. I think that's the only thing that right. means. And then it says 
and the effective musical score by Bill Justice. Now, if I recall, the the music is basically the same damn song played over and over and over again. That's about the bandit. You spun it down, which is not by Justice. That's uh, that's the Jerry Reed song, right? That's the Jerry Reed song, right? So I was speaking of best editing. I was talking about my, but uh, Star Wars did win the Oscar, but Smoking the Bandit was nominated. Oh, okay, for best editing, along with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Julia, and The Turning Point. The latter two of which I don't even know what those are. I've made this sort of half argument before that's not fully fleshed out that if you take take Smokey and the Bandit and Star Wars as the two biggest movies of 77 and you think of them as two different paths, you know, Smokey and the Bandit is a, it's casually made. It's, it's some people getting together to have a fun time and hope you'll have a fun time too, but they're not maxing anything out. They're not making sure you have the best time. Yeah. They're not putting together the best possible movie. They're just doing some stuff and pretty confident that they're going to be good enough to make you have fun. Star Wars is a totally different animal, and that's the path we've taken, not just in movies, but in... I, here's where I'm getting really spacey. In everything. It's the it's the part of, like... <laughs> oh, you're right. Siggy and I went to the ballgame today at Wrigley. The Wrigley Field experience in 2019 is worlds away from what it was in 77 because there are ways in which they figured out we they professionalized it. Part of that is things like safety. We have we did not die in a crush of people today. <laughs> but part of it is the continual figuring out that there are more dollars to be squeezed out of everything if you just attend more closely to we it. We did not get peed on by anybody in the men's room. I mean, you hear people talk about being at ball games in the seventies, and you were used to fights breaking out and everybody being. It was just a different world, and part of that is tied to this spread of careful professionalization and attention to detail through every aspect of life most often in pursuit of making just a little more money out of that thing yeah and i think the distinction between star wars and Smokey and the bandit is a nice starting point for thinking about that for me as two distinctive paths that's incredible that's an incredible uh observation now granted the things like smoking the bandit still continue just a much more niche market. It yeah. didn't become the Adam dominant. Adam Sandler movies, it's basically the same model. We're going to hang out with my friends for right. six weeks and make a movie. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that's probably is fart the around most on, hard fart around on camera. I would say the majority of his movies do actually work harder than Smokey and the Bandit, but I haven't seen a lot of the ones I've heard have really violated, like the Grown Ups movies. I, I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could watch the Grown Ups movies. <laughs> Despite the presence of Salma Hayek. I watched a few minutes of the comparable sort of thing, one of the comparable sort of things that uh, Rob Schneider makes with with David Spade, and then my niece was watching it, and all I kept thinking to myself was, this doesn't feel written. <laughs> it doesn't feel like they bothered to write this movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, certainly Smokey the Bandit was that, because famously uh, Sally Field, um, by the way, I think Sally Field is the best thing in that movie. She's, She's so good. I, I yeah. so enjoyed her. My favorite moment in the movie is when they're trying to switch seats. And you can tell they're just they're just doing it. to They're just having actorly play. And she's like, she's driving and Burt Lillens was trying to get under her. And she's like, oh, ah, ah and her tongue is sticking out. And, she's like, oh, and they, right before the cut is him, her saying, I think I'm in love with your belt buckle. <laughs> 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 that was not written. I'm sure that was not written. But yeah, so anyway, she had said that she'd done Sybil and she got these awards and all this attention. People kept coming up to her and telling her how good she was, but that she was so ugly. She's like, I can't believe you made yourself so ugly. 
and she got told she was ugly so much what? that she was I, wow. like, oh, my God. And then Burt Reynolds calls. says, hey, Sally, uh, we're doing this movie, Hal Needham and I. It's uh, no script, a couple of weeks. Should be a lot of fun. We want you to be the, you want to be the sex symbol? And she said, yes! Because <laughs> she had just been told for months how ugly she was. And she goes, yes, I did. He goes, I did it purely for that. <laughs> the Burt Reynolds phone call thing, it reminds me, I had a dream about two years ago where I looked at my phone and I had Burt Reynolds' number. And in the dream, I was like, why it wasn't I, I my response wasn't why do I have Burt Reynolds phone number it was why it was why have I not been using Burt Reynolds <laughs> phone number <laughs> it's the question we all ask ourselves yeah well the question I was asking myself while I was watching uh Smoking the Bandit because I'd never seen it before was is this an intentional remake of Vanishing Point because I couldn't believe the parallels with Vanishing Point I don't know if either of you have seen it it's, it's somebody's making a, a long distance delivery against an impossible deadline and becomes a kind of folk hero along the way. There's some definite uh, parallels. It's it's hard to know if any of that was intentional or not, but the way that one is very much like an existentialist view is it's it's feeling what you're talking about levi when you talk about the the shittiness of the 70s it's like the, the guy gets called the last american hero because there's no nothing stands for anything anymore it's kind of like every, every, everything we thought we were doing is purposeless and so the only, the only thing that there is to do is just to drive just to just to go just to find something to do um, and Burt reynolds in smoking the bandit is like what do i do i i just go from place to place and do what i do <laughs> Except there's no yeah. there's no self reflexiveness about that at all. No, it, there's no darkness right? or depth to that. Yeah, right. It's, yeah, it, it's it's the same movie except with inward looking and not looking. <laughs> wow. Okay. And so I, I had the, I had more I was gonna say, but I don't want to. Oh, go ahead. No, I don't want to talk about the mo a movie you haven't seen. But I was just gonna say I think the real shitty elements of Smoking the Bandit are Hal Needham's script. Or lack of such as it is. Lack of one. His camera uh, and his editing table, and just like yeah. to talk about the editing of this movie. Just go and rewatch. I watched it five times in a row because it was I couldn't believe it. Where they jump the incomplete bridge or the oh, the God, bridge that's yeah. out. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's it's visually incomprehensible what's happening in that scene, including the editing choices. How bad the footage must have been for them to have to cut to the guy squatting by the bridge. Yeah. Like, there's two shots of him five seconds apart from each other, maybe less, like three seconds apart from her. We, we, right. we see him. Right. We cut to a car coming down the road. We see him again, same angle, then cut back to the car at a different right. angle, <laughs> and then it jumps the bridge. Like, we don't need three shots of that guy in the span of 10 seconds, and yet we get it. It's all from the same angle with no development between those shots. It's It's like, what? What they must have had to, yeah. like, there's not enough footage here. We can't make this work. We can't even get the audio to line up with the with the picture. I don't know. <laughs> it's, yeah, you just, there's no point in even trying to, like, shots, gags aren't even right. set up. Like, no. uh, Buford P. P. Justice driving under the, the steel beam and getting the, the top shorn off his yeah. car. Like, that gag, it's like a central gag in the movie. They don't set it up. It totally just happens. It just happens. No, at all. The shot's not established. Like it you don't, happens in everything. You don't know what's coming. It's just something that occurs on the screen. That's Smoking the Bandit in a nutshell right there. 
And, and and I will say the one shot that slow mode of him come of the stunt drivers doing that because there's actual people in there is beautiful. It's a beautiful shot. Everything leading up to it is shit because we don't understand. It's like we didn't know he was there. We didn't know whatever. <clears throat> Nothing to do with that son. With that son in the tuxedo is funny. Period. Except for the fact that he's holding his hat when he drives. Yeah. But yeah, that's you just yeah. You just, everything just happens with no setup, no nothing. You said Hal Needham's script. He's he's credited as one of two people on the story by, and then there's like five or six other people on the screenplay credit. You needed that many people. <laughs> It's all ad libbed anyway. Like, yeah, it's hard to even say. Right. But they must have just, like, I know what they must have come up with ways to demonstrate. And I, I liked this about the movie to demonstrate uh, in innumerable times that the bandit is cool with black people and they're cool with him. Yeah, I had right. forgotten that. <laughs> right. But warthogs, the bikers, we're gonna stick in something there for no good reason, just to say how we don't like them. Yeah, let's talk about another thing that's not set up. So my the other perplexing shot of this movie is a highway patrolman jumps over a creek bed or something and lands on a flatbed truck, and we see that as a as a as a moving stunt, which happens in the Blues Brothers, right, right. And then we get another shot, which just seems like like maybe this is when one of the screenwriters like, no, we we need to milk this gag a little bit. So now we get the camera on the flatbed truck in a moving shot, the cop. Leans out the car, and this is one of the dubbed scenes. Now, this might have been sync. I don't remember. <laughs> there's a lot of weird things where there's a crash, and then you hear a dubbed-over joke of the car, like, hey, I missed that left turn or whatever. Um, <laughs> this guy's on the flatbed truck. <laughs> he leans out the window. I told you he was crazy. Yeah, stuff like that. It's a moving truck. It's still going like 40 miles an hour down the highway. He's not even, he's 20 feet from the cab of the truck. He turns to look towards the cab as if to address the driver, but then turns back towards the rear of the truck so that right. the camera and the mic can pick it up and says, can I get up at the next exit? And then turns back to the driver as if he's like, he wound up the line and now is delivering it to the driver <laughs> into the wind and 20 feet away when the driver doesn't even show signs of knowing he's there. Like it's, it, it, it doesn't make any kind of sense in any way, visual conceptual like none of it works it's like watching skeletor's apocalypse this it's like uh, watching <laughs> it's like watching something kids made like i said this is definitely not a movie that was slaved over with care <laughs> but then there's part of me that wonders like they had to close down streets they had to get locations doing chasing yeah. stuff is not small or simple so how on earth you even plot out something like that when you don't know what you're doing Seems insane to me. Well, it's funny because Hal Needham has been a stunt coordinator forever. He should have had a, a bigger handle on this. But in terms of being able to build his sequences in a way that were coherent and satisfying, I mean, that wasn't his job shot. as a stunt coordinator, I guess. Well, his, or his but you look is... at you look at something like the chase scene at the start of The Longest Yard. He was the car car director for that movie, and the chase scene is spectacular, and every bit of it works. It's coherent in every way and it's tense and it but it's also short and it made me wonder the transition yeah. and also just like he had just got to focus on his role yeah. right and now he's responsible for a lot more and it's just like the peter principle like you can't yeah. focus on the things you're really good at because you have to worry about all this other stuff too that you're not really equipped to take care of yeah 
it's, it's pretty easy to see how that would happen. So when you see things like the Blues Brothers, when you see things like Short Time, and when you see things like any car chase where you can follow everything and you've got the geography and, you, and, and you're doing new things and it's very interesting, it's, you really get to appreciate how much work actually goes into it and the lightning in the bottle they created because when you watch Smokey and the Bandit, I, 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 it's amazing to me that it's even palatable. <laughs> and, and again, it just comes back to you had two incredibly charming leads. Or you saw right. something recognized in, in your culture in this movie that you weren't seeing otherwise. I think, I think that's yeah, a big think, part okay, of it, too. Yeah. Truck drivers yeah, are heroes. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a big uh, thing, too. Yeah, yeah. Cops are all just out to ruin your life so they can be, they can be ridiculed. Yeah, yeah. And also, if you think about it, the fact that he's the bandit, the fact that he's this considered this outlaw when really, I mean, I, mean, I so I, I transcribed a uh, interview with Hal Needham. He told the story about how he came up with the idea for smoking the bandit. He was in Georgia and he was given some cores and the, the maid in his hotel kept stealing his cores. And he stopped her one day and said, I don't really care, but why are you taking the cores? And she's like, well, it's illegal here because it's not pasteurized or it wasn't illegal. You shouldn't get it here. Because, uh, it was illegal to sell it east of the Mississippi. East of the Mississippi. So what the movie crept on is the modern day, that was the outlaw aspect of it, was that he's breaking the law, but it's not really a serious law. It's not like he's bringing drugs over the lines or something like that. And also, the outcome is you drink Coors. Yeah. And he doesn't right. even drink exactly. Coors. That's how much he... I mean, this isn't really an anti-establishment movie. He's doing this at the behest of two... Texas millionaires <laughs> and he doesn't really stick it to them. He, he, he gives them their cores and he doesn't even enjoy any. He never even takes a sip of it. And then he, we don't get to see it come out of the truck. Right. All we see is he gets out and they say, you know, I want some clam chowder, double or nothing. So another $80,000 for clam chowder from Boston. He, he talks them into <laughs> buying a better car, which he doesn't get to keep. They have it now. He gets their Cadillac, which they've given to him f freely. So he didn't even swindle them out of that. Yeah. And now he's just going to do another errand for them. He's just their errand boy. Well, that's just it. I, th I think people, uh, there's a certain people who are like, hey, if we can get something big out of these millionaires, woohoo, you know, that's the hero life. He's, he's giving them exactly what they want. He's not. Yeah. And the movie, uh, for all of the positive race relations we see the bandit uh, enjoy, uh, Buford T. Justice doesn't really get comeuppance for his casual racism. No, he, he does gets, not. He gets a stern look from a sheriff, but then he gets to hear that uh, the bandit call him a good man or a quality man or whatever it right, is, right. his salute at the end. He, he strokes his ego a bit when really the bandit honestly didn't do anything to aggravate the sheriff or didn't do anything to, um, to get him on his tail. Uh, he, the sheriff's after the bride of his son and, uh, and weirdly the sheriff's after, I think so he can watch her ass jiggle down the line during that down the aisle. That was creepy. Uh, the ass is, uh, definitely gets a lot of exaltation in this movie. Yeah. I think and actually, in bad news bears. Actually, that's what Kelly <laughs> Leak is uh, into. Also. I actually think the choice of Sally Fields, white pants may have been the thing that they 
movie spent the most time on. Like, I think that was the, th- the most considered decision in the making of that movie. <laughs> oh, I, I think you're right. And yet, I see its influence in other movies. It's weird. Hmm. Well, sounds like we've reached the end, uh, um, so to speak. So it, I was just trying to look up to remember. the So the second Smoking the Bandit still has Burt Reynolds. The third one just has Jackie Gleason. The third! I am looking for... I found the third uh, Smoking the Bandit at a, a VHS copy of it at a place up the street that was going out of business. And so I have it, and so I can't wait to watch it. Um, I don't think it's the version I've heard told about. Apparently, there's a first cut of this movie where it's like Jackie Gleason playing all the characters. Oh, my God. Or something like that. There's something just balls out crazy that they're like, no. (laughs) But the beginning of Smokey the Bandit 3. Does he play the car? Yeah, exactly. The beginning of it is him parroting Patton. Whoa. Buford T. Justice comes up in front of the patent, like the American flag, and and he's got the helmet on and the the uh, what do you call it the uh, the whip, crop, the crop. There you go. And so uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I can't wait. <laughs> it's not uh, it's not going to be good. Well, <laughs> I I can do you one better because when we we bought Smoking the Bandit a few years ago because we wanted to have some friends over and watch it, and the best way to buy it was in a pack that had all six movies, including the three that were made for TV in the late nineties, starring no one that were called bandit colon bandit, silver angel bandit goes country. And the last one is called for reasons I have yet to look into bandit colon bandit comma bandit. (laughs) I want to say those three were made as, Oh. As part of an ad campaign for the Impala or something, I'm not kidding. And they were TV movies. Yeah, yeah. I seem to vaguely recall that. And uh, those are the ones you should crack open first someday. Wow, I can't wait. Bandit colon Bandit comma Bandit. Well, speaking of uh, sequels that I have not seen and don't intend to see, uh, that Levi's prompting. I've just read. Uh, the Bad News Bears in Breaking Training, a, a book number four in the Deep Focus series by Soft Skull Press, which is a, 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 a what's the author's name? Uh, Josh, Josh Wilker. Josh, Josh Wilker, Wilker, who's best known for a memoir, Cardboard Gods, about his family and baseball. He writes a deep analysis uh, slash memoir about the Bad News Boys in Breaking Training and his experience watching it. Uh, it's it's a very brisk read, like 114 pages. Excellent, um, excellent book. I now I have to read uh, Cardboard Gods, even though I'm not a, a a baseball card guy. But I'll I'll read anything this guy writes. I'm also interested in the other ones uh, books in the series, which there's one on Death Wish. Um, I forget what the other other ones are about. Anyway, I, actually, since you've introduced this, I will I will read you a very quick bit from. The Bad News Bears and Breaking Training. Josh Wilker does a great job, again, hitting a lot of the themes that we've tried to hit on here. He's about five years older than we are, if I recall. And so he lived a little more of the 70s directly as a kid than than we did. He was a little more aware and growing up, actually getting into his teen years in the 70s. Um, 
but there was a bit from the Bad News Bears and Breaking Training that I really love where he he talks about a scene as he puts it and here I'm reading from it's not even anything I'd consciously noticed till I'd seen the film many many times Carmen dismounts from the back of Kelly's bike then enters the field of play by vaulting over the fence the beauty of this action is that he vaults over a part of the fence immediately adjacent to an open gate. He would have had to move a matter of inches to walk through it simply and easily. Instead, he vaults, and not in a particularly graceful way either. It's not something anyone in their right mind would have done ever in the history of Earth, and I love it. He, he later goes on to say, It's not done as a commentary on the fakeness of cinematic poses, but as the sincere creative expression of a fictional character who is completely, beautifully full of shit. <laughs> this book is worth finding if you have any interest in the bad news bears of the 70s yeah it's a very good read that's wonderful but that's not the only book that are that's on people's minds levi tell us what else you've been working on lately okay so besides fine podcasts in october the university of chicago press where i'm the marketing director will publish a book that my wife stacy and i edited called the daily sherlock holmes which as the english say does what it says on the tin it's a quote a day for every day of the year, including Leap Day, from a Sherlock Holmes story. Uh, Stacy and I put it together oh, wow. last fall. There's The University of Chicago Press has a modest series of this. We've done a Henry James and a Charles Dickens. We have a Jane Austen coming. Uh, so the nice little paperback books. And we had such a good time pulling together our favorite bits from Sherlock Holmes stories and trying to mix in some variety. Uh, the idea is, if you're a Holmes fan, we want you to... Open this up and feel immediately at home in some familiar stories and settings and characters. Uh, some lines that make you laugh, things that make you kind of go, "Oh, Watson, I love Watson." <laughs> it's a fun book designed for fans, and I—it's been a great pleasure to get to pull it together and get to talk to Holmes people about it. And it comes out in October and be in bookstores mm. everywhere. Great. Well, if you don't have time to read, then uh, you certainly got no excuse now. So pick this one up and read half a page a day. I believe you also had been involved in editing some of the releases of uh, the Parker novels. Well, so we, yeah, the, through partly through my efforts, the University of Chicago Press re reissued all of Richard Stark's 24 novels featuring the heister Parker, uh, the first of which and is best known to movie people as the basis of the film Point Blank. Um, it also ended up being filmed with Mel Gibson as payback years later. And then I edited a collection of Westlake's nonfiction called The Getaway Car that was really a joy to put together. It was that situation where you get the to— The Getaway Car, that's what I have. You get to actually give something back to an artist who's given a lot to you. I got to pull all these pieces together and say, hey, there's a, there's a book here. Uh, and then, actually, the film connection, all this led me two years ago I, with another old college friend, Eric Hines— I co-curated a festival at the Museum of the Moving Image. for. We did a, a weekend of Donald Westlake films, so we showed Point Blank. We showed The Grifters, which he wrote the screenplay and got an Oscar nomination. Uh. We showed uh, The Stepfather, which is an 80s thriller that holds up pretty well. Uh, the the Outfit with, uh, with Joe Don Baker <laughs> and Robert Duvall. And then... Um, as well, we showed The Hot Rock with Robert Redford. Oh, it was a ton rock. of fun. It was really, really great to see this variety of heist and crime films from the 70s into the 80s. That's awesome. So, yeah, please pick up those books. Pick up, what was the name of the, of the Sherlock Holmes book? The Daily Sherlock Holmes. The Daily Sherlock Holmes. So pick up these. They'll make your life better. Trust me. <laughs> and let us know what you've been reading about movies or movies that you've been watching about books or whatever you uh, want to let us know about previous episodes of this 
Fine podcast. Just email us at youwatchedwrong at happypanic.net or leave us a post on our Facebook page. We're on Twitter too. And check out uh, Levi's uh, Twitter handle so you can see his screenshots from the material shittiness of the 70s. Yeah, the visual backup to what we were talking about. And what's your handle on there? I'm just Levi Stoll, all one word. There you go. Thanks for having me, guys. This has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for us. Thank you for being here. And if you watched the Bad News Bears and found yourself sorely disappointed when the Bears lost, you watched it wrong.